This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. During his eight years in office, President Barack Obama may have been the first U.S. leader to seriously address one of the major environmental issues of our time, climate change. The biggest challenge we're going to face in protecting this place and places like it is climate change. Make no mistake, climate change is no longer just a threat. It's already reality. I was talking to some of the rangers here. Here in Yosemite, meadows are drying up. Bird ranges are shifting farther northward. Alpine mammals like uh, pikas are being forced further upslope to escape higher temperatures. Yosemite's largest glacier, once a mile wide, is now almost gone. That was from a speech the president made last June at Yosemite National Park. Elizabeth Shogren is a correspondent for High Country News, which reports on the American West. She says Obama has had a major impact on the approach taken by the federal government on issues like energy in the West. However, she adds changes may be looming under a Trump administration. Elizabeth, welcome to the program. So nice to be here, Nathan. What is Barack Obama's legacy on the environment as it pertains to the West? Well, I think one of the things that's that's really most important to think about is that the president, uh, especially in his second term, but not only, had um, put climate change and clean energy front and center, and that resounded through the West. Um, and and I think um, one of the ways that we've seen it happening uh, that I find very interesting is through public lands, which of course are such a big part of the West. And we saw what um, truly a revolution during the Obama administration. Renewable power generation was not a big part of the mission of of the um, of the of the Bureau of Land Management or the other agencies that are part of uh, that that help to to um, manage the public lands in the West. And under um, Obama's first sec- Secretary of Interior, uh, a Coloradan, um, Ken Salazar, uh, the renewable energy became um, a very top priority, and um, and he managed to he and his um, his successor managed to put renewable energy projects across the West um, in, in um, and especially in Colorado and Nevada. And so that was a, a major change. It basically opened public lands to big renewable energy projects. And I don't think that that's one of the examples that I think will not go away in the coming administration. Uh, Congress recently voted to make it easier to transfer control of public lands away from the federal government. What will the impact of that be for the West? That's a really interesting example of how uh, in um, the House in particular, there's a great deal of energy behind the desire to reduce the, the, um, the power of federal agencies to regulate and to rein in their ability to do things. And as far as that particular rule, it, um, it's a very um, particular one that has to do with uh, whether or not um, when, the, when the House proposes um, transferring federal lands, um, when they want to vote on it, do they have to find savings in other, um, other programs elsewhere in the budget before they do it? And, um, and so um, after that vote, which is something that the, the Senate doesn't have to weigh in on because it's just about the House rules, um, after that vote, they, they basically don't have to consider um, cost at all. They can say basically it doesn't cost anything to transfer to the federal government to transfer parcels of land to the states or communities, and and that could 
that could make it easier. Um, that's not going to result in transfers, but that could make it easier. And there are a lot of other things underway, actually, um, in the House in particular, efforts to make it easier to make big changes in the way Washington looks at the West and how and how it manages public lands and and other um, other um, regulatory issues, how it protects um, wildlife and water and clean air. There are lots of efforts underway. How successful they'll be, we'll have to just wait and see. And and how does a President Trump fit into all this uh, pertaining to the public lands and this transfer of public lands uh, that we've been talking about? Well, as far as the transfer of public lands, I think we don't know yet what to expect from the Trump administration. The pre- uh, President-elect Trump himself has spoken on both sides of the issue. He's uh, made it clear in the campaign that he didn't support um, selling off federal lands, um, but he also cheerleaded for some groups that do want to do that. So I think his position is a little murky on that. Well, and as, as Secretary of the Interior, uh, Representative Ryan Zink of Montana, is he? Is he? He's not in favor of this federal land transfer question, right? He's not. In fact, um, Repre- Representative Zinke, who, um, Zinke, who has been picked to be the head of the Interior Department, actually um, uh, quit his position as um, as one of the one of the people writing the Republican platform at the political convention last summer um, over this very issue. He didn't like that the platform included a provision supporting this transfer of federal lands um, to the states and communities, and and so he he jumped off that panel. And and he's made it clear a number of times that he's not for um, selling off or giving away federal lands to the states. His position, however, is a little nuanced, and so it will be interesting to see what happens once he's in, in the Interior Department, because he has supported the idea of localities having a, a lot more say and even t- in a kind of pilot way um, managing the the federal lands that are in their region. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens once he um, becomes the interior secretary. There, I don't think there's a lot of suspense about whether or not he'll be confirmed by the Senate, but, you know, that's not a done deal yet. But I, I, I think it will be uh, – it's not um, – it's not a, a, a done deal by any notion that the, the Trump administration will favor this. And also there's just this, this general thing that happens to people once they get power in Washington. Nobody likes to cede it, right? Nobody likes to give up their authority. So once, um, once those lands are under, um, under an interior secretary Zinke's um, purview, it, it, it becomes much less likely that he'd, he'd be um, game to give it away. You're with and the Col- other thing that's uh, another influence that I think is um, very important to look for is that the, the hunting and fishing groups um, could be expected to have a great deal of influence in Washington in the coming um, years. And, and there is a, a great sentiment among hunt, hunting and fishing groups that giving up access is not something that they want. 
You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking with Elizabeth Shogren, Washington correspondent for High Country News. She recently wrote about President Barack Obama's environmental legacy in the West. Moving back to President Obama, there were a number of dramatic changes by his administration, but uh, you argue they weren't entirely positive. Uh, he weakened the Endangered Species Act and left some key public lands unprotected. How do you account for that discrepancy uh, if he is so in favor of, of, of the environment and things like that? Well, I think what's important is is that over the course of the presidency, President Obama changed. Um, and um, that's probably in part because, um, you know, he really was stung early in the administration when um, he was pushing for a, um, for a, a a nationwide legislation to rein in greenhouse gas emissions um, when he came to office. But um, Congress switched hands. Republicans gained control just two years in, and he gave it up. And this kind of this kind of legislation wasn't really talked of again. For a couple of years, it seemed like he was in retreat about climate change. In 2012, he gave a speech in Nevada about... Um, renewable energy and said he was for clean power and he would never back away from it. But in this very long speech, he never once mentioned the word climate change. Um, and that's, I found that very striking, that, um, that, that somehow it seemed that at least if he wanted to get reelected, um, talking about climate change wasn't the way to do it. Once he was reelected, he um, had this renewed fervor for climate change and for trying to find ways to address it. He went um, a long way to doing that. Um, he, his um, EPA passed what's called the, or wrote up what's called the Clean Power Plan, which is um, supposed to cut um, greenhouse gas emissions from the electric power sector by about a third by 2030. That's a key part, uh, a, a key um, accomplishment that the president was able to take um, to um, to Paris and help negotiate an international climate change agreement, which was um, was finished up a little more than a year ago. And um, and those two things are very key to the president's legacy on climate change. It's not sure, however, how enduring they will be because the Trump administration has, uh, the, uh, President Trump has been quite, um, qu- quite strong in his um, his uh, pronouncements that he's going to kill them or rein them in or something. And we're not sure exactly how he'll do that or what will happen. But those are those are places where um, where a new president can roll back the accomplishments of President Obama. So it's it's a mixed thing, and I think in the end we'll have to see. I do think some of some of the momentum. I thought it was fascinating because President Obama just today um, in a scientific journal called Science, he um, he penned his own um, article in favor, uh, saying basically that the. The accomplishments of clean energy are um, are irreversible, and that the the momentum will ca- continue um, towards a, a cleaner and cleaner energy future for our country. In um, in the years he was in office, uh, the the greenhouse gas emissions from the electric from the energy sector were down nearly 10 percent, while the economy was grew nearly uh, more than 10 percent. So that was a fact that he used, uh, among others, to argue that this um, that this revolution is not going to stop with um, with with the end of his administration. And I thought it was very telling that he cited a lot of climate change science when making 
um, his case that that needs to happen. That needs and, to happen. So so uh, we're going to wrap it here briefly in the last 30 seconds. What is the biggest takeaway from reporting on this story and reporting on the president for, for the past uh, many years? Well, climate change became a very important um, pr- a, a very important problem in President Obama's eyes. In, when he was looking at his legacy, he wanted to leave the country in a, and the West in a much stronger condition to be able to um, to address climate change and go forward from there. And many of the changes that he made will be enduring. Elizabeth Shogren is a Washington, D.C. correspondent for High Country News, which covers the American West. She joined us by telephone to discuss the legacy of President Barack Obama in the West with regards to the environment and issues like climate change. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. There were some hefty subjects in the governor's state of the state speech Thursday, raising taxes to pay for transportation, access to broadband, marijuana enforcement. A team of CPR journalists listened to the speech and poured all of their expertise into annotating it. Their work is at CPRnews.org. Consider it your roadmap to Governor Hickenlooper's 2017 goals. And CPR's Megan Verlee led the project, and she joins us now. Hi, Megan. Hey, Nathan. Uh, Megan, I'm looking at the annotated speech here, and there's one section near the top where I see our reporters had a lot to say. Let's listen. Every school, hospital, clinic, and home should have high-speed Internet. In rural Colorado, only 7 out of 10 households have access. I'm announcing the creation of a broadband office to help us get from 70% to 85% coverage by the time we leave office and 100% by 2020. Tell us more about what the governor's proposing here. Well, rural broadband expansion has been a priority for the governor for the past couple of years. He really sees it as fundamental to any economic improvement in these outstate areas. And uh, in fact, as one of our reporters found, there's this 2015 report from CU that uh, calculated that getting high-speed internet access statewide would raise property values outside of the metro areas and in resort areas in particular, potentially keep seasonal residents around longer, which would obviously help boost their economies. But as we note in this section, the barriers to getting high-speed internet access statewide are twofold. They're geography. It's just tough to get through those mountains and cost. There aren't a lot of residents to pick up the tab. To get around both of those has required very active state government participation in the past. And it looks like by rolling out an actual broadband office, the governor is just going to ramp up this effort. So let's listen to another section of the state of the state that can benefit from a little context. It came when the governor started talking about what the state needs to do to better prepare students for the workforce. Part of that work includes a common sense plan to fund education. The constitutional budget constraints for school finance are part, well, they're the thorniest part of our fiscal thicket. This July, the Gallagher Amendment will cause property taxes for schools to drop by $170 million. The thorniest part of the fiscal thicket is the Gallagher Amendment. Can you help me out with that? (laughs) Well, this is exactly why we thought it would be helpful to folks to annotate the speech. I mean, how often are you on a first-name basis with (laughs) constitutional amendments? In fact, it sounds like the governor might not quite be on a first-name basis there. The Gallagher Amendment, as we explained online, is one of the three constitutional provisions that make up what long has been called the Gordian Knot uh, and what Hickenlooper likes to call the fiscal thicket, which is kind of fun to say. (laughs) So how does it all work? 
To way oversimplify, Gallagher holds down local property taxes, which shifts more and more the cost of funding schools over to the state. But then you have the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, which limits how much money Colorado can bring in to pay for those costs. And then finally, on top of it all, you have Amendment 23, which requires school spending by the state to increase a certain amount each year. You put all those three together, it becomes very, very hard to make the math in the state budget balance out. And so it sounds like the governor wants lawmakers to do something about this. He does. Uh, For one thing, he wants to do an accounting change around something called the hospital provider fee, uh, which we explain more in our annotations because it's complicated. But additionally, our education reporter Jenny Brindine has been tracking a number of ideas percolating out in the state legislature, which she goes into in our notes. One uh, might be to change how much the the state budget is allowed to grow under Tabor or how it's allowed to grow under Tabor, which would allow it to grow more in good years. Another would be to set a statewide property tax rate to try and even out some of the funding disparities between districts currently. And then there's a third proposal, which would start using lottery money to fund state schools, at least for the next few years. How likely is that that any of these are going to pass? Not great. Uh, the the first two would have to go to voters, and it takes a lot of lawmaker support to put things on the ballot. The lottery idea was floated before and didn't make it through. And I'll note that that money currently pays for uh, outdoor recreation opportunities, which are pretty popular with Coloradans. Before you leave us, is there one last part of the governor's speech where you think people will be particularly happy to have these annotations? You mean other than John Daly's little attempt to sneak in a Seinfeld reference on us? <laughs> well, our reporters had a lot to add to Hickenlooper's comments on marijuana. The governor is putting a renewed focus on how the current caregiver laws make it relatively easy for criminals to, to grow here and then ship to the black market in other states. And he cast the whole issue of marijuana legalization as a defining one, not just for his administration, but for Colorado, something future historians will use to judge the state. And they'll look back on how we use this new revenue, not just to improve our schools and and to regulate the industry, but also to address some of the unintended consequences of legalization. There's no question that marijuana and other drugs, in combination with mental illness or other disabling conditions, are essential contributors to chronic homelessness. And, and Megan, homelessness is something our reporters have been covering a lot. Uh, what do they have to say about the link between drug use and chronic homelessness? Nathaniel Minor points out that there is anecdotal evidence that recreational marijuana is increasing the number of homeless youth in the state, that young people are coming here to, to be able to smoke and not worry about getting arrested. But he also notes that service providers do not see marijuana in and of itself as a reason people become homeless. I see. Overall, what do you hope readers take away from having this kind of context to the state of the state? First, I'd like to think that we can give people the, well, I'd like that we can give people the sources for a lot of the numbers and claims the governor makes so Mm -hmm. that if readers want, they can go and get more details on these facts and figures that go by so quickly. Also, I've hoped that we've helped to provide some perspective. A lot of the proposals Hickenlooper made yesterday, they come with backstory. They're either things that he has tried unsuccessfully to do in the past, or they're the accumulation of earlier incremental efforts that he's now pushing forward in a bigger way. This was a meaty speech, and if people take the time to read it all and to read all of our notes on it, they're going to walk away with a pretty good picture of the biggest issues facing Colorado and what the governor and top lawmakers want to do about them. And of 
course, you can find this annotated state of the state at cprnews.org. Thanks, Megan. Hey, thanks for having me on. Megan Verlee was our longtime political reporter. She's now an editor here at Colorado Public Radio. Up next, George Carl joins us. His new memoir is Ruffling Some Feathers. We'll find out why this basketball coach is back in the news. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When George Carl was named the NBA's Coach of the Year in 2013, it was a moment to savor for a scrappy coach known for his in-your-face style. Carl had led the Denver Nuggets to 423 victories over nine seasons. And then, just like that, he was out of a job. Breaking news, George Carl is out as head coach of the Denver Nuggets basketball team. Seven Sports says Coach Carl heard the news in a phone call with Josh Kroenke, and this comes as a shock to some after Carl earned NBA Coach of the Year honors. Well, Carl gets the last word on this and other matters in a new book, Furious George, My 40 Years Surviving NBA Divas, Clueless GMs, and Poor Shot Selection. George Carl, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you. Uh, take us back to that moment in 2013 when you were fired from the Nuggets. How did you take that news? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been fired at every place I've been. You know, coaches usually are hired to get fired. Uh, I was disappointed because the, I thought we had a chance to become a, an elite team. And they were going to choose someone else to do it. Uh, and, you know, and you know, we lost in the first round. We've never been out. The only time we got out of the first round was one time. And so uh, I understand being in a city for a long time and not having great success is usually a, a, a prescription to a coach getting hired. Uh, but in the same sense, I thought we had turned the corner with that team. And I thought it was probably one player or one piece away from being a uh, maybe an elite team in the NBA for three or four years. Did you expect to have the job as long as you wanted it? No, no, no. I mean, I, I knew, I knew. I mean, eight, I, I was here for eight and a half years, and that's a that's a that's a celebration. There's nothing. There's nothing. Any, anything comes in my mind is I had great. A great time. I found a home. I have some some super friends, and we won a lot of basketball games. So I'm not. I don't even look back on it. Other than, you know, I I wanted that opportunity to build with that team because you know the other team that we went to the conference finals was with Chauncey and and with Mello, and this team was kind of getting into its new identity. Uh, and I thought, as I said, I thought it was young. I thought it was together. I thought it was enthusiastic and I thought it had a chance. You know, you know, Chauncey Billups, Carmelo Anthony, other members of the Nuggets, uh, does, does it get any easier, uh, you know, moving from team to team? You say in the book, this is a hard way to make a living, great money, no security, no stability, long, frequent absences from the wife and kids. So you got the money, but you got this kind of, uh, uh, unknown. Why do you, why do you still want to do it? Well, it's a job that has energy. It's a job that has intensity. It has, it's a job that has passion and juice. And every game is a, you know, any, you know, you have a two and a half hour window of ups and downs, momentum swings, enthusiasm, depression, dealing with referees, figuring out, figuring out great teams. I mean, it's, it's, it, there's a stimulus to what I do. 
but the the work around the preparation and the, and and the travel and and all the other things that have now come onto the plate of being a coach has gotten has gotten great. I mean, you know, where well, I, I always I use the uh, the the statement that in 1980, you know, a decision was made in a basketball locker room with maybe four or five people in it. A decision today is in a boardroom with about 25 people in it. And, and the decision in 1980 was a million dollar decision. And now there are decisions out there that are a hundred million, $200 million decisions. And so it's, it's grown so fast and it's exciting. The fans love it. The game's gotten better. Uh, the game is more, you know, more is produced at such a, you know, like a, a Hollywood type of production almost every night. And the coaching has gotten better. It's gotten, it's gotten, it's gotten very, very, very competitive. The players are, you know, are, are bigger, stronger, faster, quicker, shoot the ball better. The three point shots become unbelievably important. Uh, coaches are trying to figure out how to stop the offenses. Uh, because the offense right now in the NBA seems to be in control of the defenses more than ever, so it's a it's a it's a, it's a challenge. It's a mental challenge. But I promise anybody that wants to do the job, it's a lot harder than you think it think it is. It sounds like and you really it, miss being on uh, you know being courtside. Well, I think I miss being in the game on a daily basis. I guess is the best way to phrase it. And uh, hey, if I don't ever coach again, I can be happy. If I ever co- if I do get another opportunity to coach again, I can be happy doing that too. I think I'm in a state I'm right, I'm capable of going on any adventure that that stimulates me, motivates me, and inspires me. Well, I want to talk about uh, some of these NBA quote unquote divas, uh, which you talk about in your book. Uh, you coached Carmelo Anthony, and you write that uh, quote Carmelo was a true conundrum for me in the six plus years I had him. He was the best offensive player ever coached. He was also a user of people, addicted to the spotlight, and very unhappy when he had to share it. Unquote. Why? What frustrated you most about him? Yeah, you know, the frustration as coaching is you know Carmelo even though he is a great player, an all-star player, was very, very important in rebuilding the Denver Nuggets, uh, you know, the foundation of the Denver Nuggets for the future. Uh, you know, when he got here, they were a struggling bad team, and, and, and within a year, they were a good team. And Carmelo should be given a lot of credit for that. Uh, but as a coach, you want your guys to understand what they can be. And when you've got a great talent like Carmelo, you want to push him, and I, I think I tried to push him in the right way, and he became a you know he became a great player, and but he could have been better. You know I think I could have done a better job getting him to be more responsible at the defensive end of the court. I think I could have done a better job to be let him be more consistent as a a playmaker, as a ball handler, as a decision maker. In the same sense, you can't you can't be unhappy with what he what he became, and, and we won a lot of basketball games because of his special talents. Well, there's been a lot of talk uh, on social media with with some of your former players describing your coaching style as kind of uh, 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 aggressive. You write about your coaching style saying, I didn't cajole or appeal to reason. I challenged my team, questioned their manhood and their intellect when they screwed up and dared them to play better than they ever had. How do you walk the line between inspiring your players and alienating them? 
Well, I think as a coach, you can't you can't want to be liked. You know, I mean, I mean, you can't can't that cannot be on your priority list when you're coaching 15 players and managing another 15, you know, coaches and equipment managers and trainers and nutritionists and analytics and scouts. Uh, you know, you know, you hopefully will put a program out there that everybody likes to be a part of. But doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to like you every day. And uh, you know, I think the whole thing comes down to is, I, I want our, I want my team and the group of players and people that work with us, with me, to be respectful and committed and dedicated. And when you're in a game of win lose, and you know, you get into arguments. When you get in, when you get in a four or five game losing streak. You have difficult times. You have, you know, you have opinions that conflict and create conflict. And that's that's the genius of the great coaches that they manage these they, they manage these difficult times and these difficult situations into positive experiences, and they move forward and they learn from it. They, it, it may, somehow, some way, a good coach takes a tough situation and makes it makes it makes the team better because of it, stronger because of it, smarter because of it. My guest is former Denver Nuggets coach George Carl. He's written a new book called Furious George, My 40 Years Surviving NBA Divas, Clueless GMs in Poor Shot Selection. Uh, Anthony and his teammate Kenyon Martin, you wrote, both carried, quote, two big burdens, all that money and no father to show them how to act like a man. And you've gotten a lot of heat for that comment, especially from the players themselves. Martin tweeted, quote, I didn't have a father growing up. We all know that. What's George's excuse for being a terrible person? Did that surprise you, that that tweet and, the, and kind of the backlash from from this book? I can't deny I was a little surprised by, you know, the attacking mentality, and I'm sorry for that. I said, I said you know, the, the fatherhood thing I could have presented in, in a better way. Uh, I, I, it was abrupt and direct, and then I just moved on. It, I, didn't, I didn't elaborate on the frustration of coaching players in, in a young age, trying to get them in the, on the right path, kind of motivating them to understand professionalism. You know, trying to get them to figure the game out uh, with some who, who's giving them the guidance, who's giving them the direction, and, and you know, you know, we asked we let we asked nineteen twenty year old players to go from college to pro ball, and it's a very difficult step. Everybody thinks it's easy. It isn't easy. Even the best players in college basketball usually need a year, most sometimes at least two or three, and sometimes even four and five to learn how to be an 82-game-a-year pro player, prepare your body, prepare your mind, prepare your emotions for the roller coaster ride of an NBA season. And, and the guy that's kind of directing that is the coach. And, you know, fathers to me were very important in my life. The book itself has a lot of fatherhood about my parenting and how the troubles I had because of basketball with my son and my daughter. And then also talks about how Dean Smith was my second father. And I had, a, I had a tremendous support system and I still made a lot of mistakes. So I, I, I'm, I was just trying to be a sounding board of some of the frustrations coaches and assistant coaches have to go through and trying to motivate and direct some young kids through the game, the game of the NBA. And, and Smith was a coach, a North Carolina coach. Uh, I, I want to move to 2010 
You were with the Nuggets. You were diagnosed with head and neck cancer. You read about the ordeal of fighting the disease with chemo and radiation, and you returned to coaching, but you write that you weren't the same coach. Uh, Briefly, what changed? It's pretty simple. When you have cancer, you're scared. You know, when you have, when you, when you're going under every day, you're going in and getting radiated for 30 minutes. You don't know what the, what the hell is going on with your body. And then you throw chemotherapy in there. Your body is in a reactionary state. And to try to coach, you know, not only was I coaching the NBA team, I thought we were one of the best NBA teams at that time. And I didn't think I could give the focus or the discipline or the commitment. Uh, you know, I thought I could at the beginning, but after about two weeks of treatment, I realized that my energy force, my mind, and my body was just saying, you're stupid for trying to do this. And if I had to do it again, I would say, not even try. I probably shouldn't even try it. I mean, I, I think I lasted four weeks uh, of the treatment. And then the, the last three or four weeks, I, I had to uh, give it over to the assistant coaches. And they agreed that way. So do you want to get back into the game? Uh, you were most recently uh, with the Sacramento Kings, but uh, left there at the 2015-2016 season. Do, do you want to go back? Uh, I'm open to anything. You know, I'm, I'm in a position in my life that, you know, if I retire, which is probably not what I want to do, I want to be in the game. I want to work in the game of basketball in some way. But I also realize that, if that doesn't happen, I think I can find another avenue of success and happiness. Uh, you know, I'm 65 years old, and I'm sitting out there every day hoping something good's going to come my way. Have you mellowed? I have mellowed. I mean, Furious George is, you know, I think over the last five to seven years, ever since my second cancer, I've now come into a place where I'm much more mellow than I once was. Most of the stories of Furious George are seven, eight, nine, ten years old, and people forget that over ten years we all change, we all evolve, and you know I'm a different person than I was in 2008, 2012, and I'm sure all all my players I've coached have a similar, you know, growth process. Coach, thanks for joining us, and, and the dogs as well. <laughs> Coach. Coach George Carl coached the Denver Nuggets from 2004 to 2013. He's written a new memoir called Furious George, My 40 Years Surviving NBA Divas, Clueless GMs, and Poor Shot Selection. He'll sign copies at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in East Colfax next Wednesday. Up next, two Denver moms who use comedy to combat the woes of parenting. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A bit of a warning, this next segment could be considered parentally incorrect. That's a term coined by Denver moms Shayna Firm and Tracy T. They say it's the best way to describe their comedy show, The Pump and Dump. Oh God, you just Gross, 
This is Fern singing her song Gross, one of the many tunes you might hear at a performance. The two moms kick off their 2017 tour at Comedy Works South in Denver next week. Shayna, Tracy, welcome to the program. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, Shayna, explain what you mean by parentally incorrect. Well, um, the show started with us kind of, you know, the idea was that we would say the things that people really were afraid to say. Yeah. Um, we would be the jerks and kind of talk about the things that happen as parents um, that, you know, maybe you don't want to admit or, um, you know, that maybe you would feel guilty saying or talking about. Like what? Um, well, you know, there's just a lot of things that happen to us every day. And I think one of the, we don't use these words in particular, but we, we say that parenting is really messed up and ridiculous. And I think that on a daily basis, there's just so many (laughs) things that we never thought we'd be doing that we're doing. Um, and so that's the world we live in. And that's kind of the experience we give the moms, you know, to kind of celebrate how messed up being a parent is. And and Tracy, I understand that this all began with a need for a night out without the kids. Yes. Um, So we started the show um, a little over four years ago up at Local 46 in the Highlands. Mm -hmm. Um, And both our daughters were a year and a half-ish, and Shay had just had her second. And we were just kind of in the thick of it. And Shay had been sort of reading her local mommy listserv and people, you know, freaking out about just sort of everything like you do when you have a young kid. And you know, she just kind of thought, gosh, we just all need to have a night out and a drink. And we kind of felt the same way. And so we just sort of put the show together on a lark as a way to keep our brains going, too, instead of just oozing out of our heads yeah. with diaper cream. <laughs> and um, so it started very organically and then just grew into our full-time job and a really fun very live, interactive, multimedia night out for moms. Well, and very quickly they came in groups. So we realized it was something that was like needed and that it was like a celebration with friends. Who, uh, we call them their breeder friends. We call the moms affectionately. We call them breeders. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, but you, now you have a background in the entertainment industry. You didn't mm-hmm. just go from parenting right into comedy. <laughs> yeah. you, no, no, no. You, you have some <laughs> no. experience. So yeah. h- how does this mommy comedy compared to maybe what you were doing? (laughs) Well, I think that if you had asked me six years ago if I would be writing songs about what it's like to be a mom, I would have told you that that sounds terrible. Um, But I've been writing comedy songs for... Gosh, I mean, I did it for 12 years in New York City. And so I I feel like, you know, it was just kind of an evolution of myself as a comedian. And it just kind of happened really organically. And it just is funny because it's still funny, you know? Yeah. And it's just, you know, comedy is about the space that you're in at the moment, right? So this is this is our world. And um, it's just it's very easy to laugh. I mean, we think it's important to laugh at parenting. It's just it's just <laughs> such a ridiculous endeavor. Well, let's hear another clip from one of your shows. It's uh, Shay singing the song Parental Lovin'. Oh. Let's close the baby gate and have a date. <laughs> I'm still a woman. They call mom. Let's give the kids some goldfish. Turn the TV on. <laughs> never even know we're gone. <laughs> where, where do you get uh, this material from? I'm assuming it's all from experience. None of it from experience. Um, <laughs> yes, I've never wanted private time with my husband. Well. <laughs> my children are bothering us. Just we've never, the baby gate, we've right? never yeah. turned on Sophia the first. And, yeah. um, 
snuck upstairs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is like we, we, I mean, I just wrote a new song for, um, this next show about like how moms constantly think, you know, that their kid is not getting sick, that it's just allergies, you know, like the only reason that we think of something that kind of weird and, and off is because that's so common and you would never think of it. But it's, of course, every mom is always like, oh, my God, please just be allergies. Please just be allergies. Well, and it's definitely our experience, but it's also it's also our friends' experience. It's our family's experience. I mean, you know, you share stories as parents and you just, you know, you can't make that stuff up. Well, how do you how do you gauge if something is funny? Do you put it in front of moms and be like, hey, is this funny or is it a general idea of what is funny to, to anyone, parent or, or, or not parent? Well, that's that's an interesting question because we're about to do a show for a sold-out crowd at Comedy Works that's basically almost an, you know, a brand new brand show. New. <laughs> so we ask each other a lot what's funny. Yeah, and then we just... Um... Trust that we know how to do this show because we've been doing it for four and a half years. Um, but, you know, the show's really not about us or the comedy in, in the larger scope. It's really a night out. It is the mom's night out. And that's what it's become. And these moms, you know, they go to dinner together first at 6 o'clock. The show starts at 7.30. It's done at 9. And they're home by 10. And it is like, you know, especially because we've been in Denver so long, you know, they come back. They bring friends. Oh, my sister's in town. I want to bring her to a pump and dump. It's really so much more about them having a great time we give them prizes we give them they play games you know we 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 laugh it out we have everybody write down um the most ridiculous thing their kid did recently which you can see on our instagram page there's a lot of them that we post but we have tens of thousands of those you know these stories that we read that are their stories and you know uh tracy is kind of like the host kind of the conduit for um you know guiding us through the evening and and it's really you know and it's not, we're not, we don't man bash. We're not, we don't just stand up and talk about how bad our husbands are. We don't kid bash even. It's not like, you know, two moms holding a martini glass wearing an apron like, I wish everyone did the laundry. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. not that kind of a show. Although I do wish everyone did the laundry. I wish yeah. there wasn't laundry. Wish I just that. wish laundry didn't exist. <laughs> but um, so it's it's really about the parenting experience. And it's it like we said, it's not really about us. It's about, the you know, being part of this group of parents. What, what's one of the most outlandish stories that have been written at, at one of these uh, these events about <laughs> someone's child? I don't know if we can say them on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> there's so, oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, well, there was the Walmart, the epic Walmart that kind of started it. Oh, well, let's hear that one. So <laughs> this was one of the first ones in uh this mom had written down the story. So she lost her kid at Walmart. And if you don't know this, if when you say when you tell Walmart or any big store that you lose your kid, it is instant lockdown. It's pretty amazing. Like stores, like doors are locked, no one in, no one out. And it's a thorough, like massive body search through the entire store until the child is found. And it's completely embarrassing. And when they find the kid, they have to interview you yeah. to make sure that you're actually the kid's mother. I mean, yeah. it is like an ordeal. It's an- <laughs> and she had, I think she's like three kids yeah. and one of the kids was lost. Yeah. And so thank God they found him. But then this was right before she came to the Pump and Dump show and hadn't, she hadn't been out in a long time. So she like did that, came home, dropped the kids off, came to the show and wrote it down. And so when we read this, Everyone was just like applauding her. It was like this great moment where everyone just commiserated with her and felt it. And we and just we, gave her everything we, we had on stage. We literally turned around and, and like anything that had been donated to give to moms that night. We were like, and this is for you. And this, this is, is for you. Yes. And this is for you. Please just take it. And it, it made us kind of realize that 
it was their stories that were going to make the show super yeah. interesting. Yeah. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Denver moms Shayna Firm and Tracy T. Their musical comedy show is The Pump and Dump, and they launch into their 2017 national tour next week with a performance in Denver. Now, Shana, you have two children, ages four and six. Uh, Tracy, your child is six. As they grow and get older, how does that influence your comedy? <laughs> totally. I mean, it's it's just, I, I mean, in parenting, first of all, everything that happens kind of lasts for like three weeks, right? And then changes. Yeah. So, you know, I would say that on a larger scale is just like, you know, you think you've got one thing figured out or you think, oh, finally they're potty trained. Well, now, you know, every time I walk into the bathroom, there nobody's flushed. You know, there's just like a constant challenge in a different way as they grow. So, you know, our our show is really geared towards new moms um, because that's when you're really in the thick of it and really need our show. But we have grandmas that go and still really appreciate what we're talking about because um, ultimately, and what this next tour is actually called our Band of Mothers tour. You know, we we've created kind of this space for every kind of mom. Um, and I think it's good because I failed to um, make a baby book or record any of those early times with me. <laughs> so if for us, it's good. We, you know, we're constantly reflecting back on our, you know, the early days experiences compared to now and finding that balance. And I think it gives us perspective. You know, we can think back of those early baby days when you just thought everything was going to go up in smoke and... And then it's it's nice to compare it to kind of where we're at now, which isn't I mean, we still have super young children. So everything we're going through is new and we're certain we're going to fail. And every day, you know, we just wonder if we're going to make it through, too. So will this comedy evolve when they become 10, 12, 15? Or are you going to stick with the with kind of the baby stuff? You know what? We don't know. We'll have to <laughs> see. No idea what's going to happen to <laughs> yeah. us. Everyone says we should make a teenager show, but we just think that would be horribly depressing. So <laughs> I, I might be tired of like hotel rooms and touring at that point, to be honest. I feel like I'm wrapping up now. <laughs> yeah. now. Now, this has been pretty PG, our conversation, but there is a lot of profanity in your show. Why is that? I, I think it's good. You know, we it's a night out for moms and we're not we don't make any bones. Or, you know, there's no children. You can't even know. And we have moms that want to bring their little babies so they can keep breastfeeding. It's just not really that. It's not that evening. And sometimes it's nice to just, you know, we're so, you know, we try to be good influences on our children. And sometimes it's nice just to drop some F-bombs and get it out there. And, <laughs> and you know, Shay and I just sort of say what everyone's thinking when you're just like, eat your effing food. You know, you want you you can't say it out loud to your kid, of course. So you come to the pump and dump show and and we say it for you, and then you just kind of get it all out, and then you it's can go back. You can go back home to being a great parent again. I mean, yeah. is that how you feel essentially? Yeah, I think a lot of it too. I mean, I think if if you're referring specifically to the music, um, there that's just kind of always been my brand of, of comedy, and that's just how I write. And it's never been to be shocking. It's I feel like it's always somewhat appropriate um, in a funny way, and that's just you know we're really true to who we are as writers, and um, funny is funny. And um, we just, that's just kind of how the show is. I don't think it, people are shocked. No. Yeah. Well, I, I want to wrap this this conversation up uh, with Tracy. How often do you get dads or, or people who are not parents in the audience? Or, or do you need to? All the time. Um, you know, our husbands love the show and we would never make a show that they didn't love. And dads really do appreciate it. I think they see it from a different lens. We get a lot of like, oh my gosh, now everything she was saying makes total sense. Or, <laughs> you know, I didn't think of it that way from a mom's perspective. But it's still, like we said, it's not like hating on dads the whole time. So it's really fun for any parent. And we have get lots of, you know, 
preschool teachers that come and and labor and delivery nurses that come, right. people who work with children, doulas and nannies, all of, I mean, I think if you know children, you appreciate it. That reminds me that it's a great present for dads to buy their, a, yes. and so um, we're actually, we wanted to announce today that um, our Mother's Day Eve show this year, this will be our fifth annual Mother's Day Eve comedy show and dance party. Um, this year is actually going to be at the Paramount and we are super excited. So that is the best Mother's Day gift that you could give. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you are you. so welcome. We're so happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Denver mom Shana Firm and Tracy T created the comedy show The Pump and Dump. They begin their 2017 tour next week at Comedy Works South in Denver. And that's Colorado Matters for this Friday. I'm Nathan Heffel. Thanks to Michael Hughes and all of our producers. We'll see you next week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.